Well, please turn now in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah chapter 24, where we will read the whole chapter. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is still, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down, every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth, among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the hosts of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. And the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for the help of your Spirit now as we come to study your holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. We pray that He would open it to us and apply it to our hearts and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Augustine, the 5th century bishop of Hippo, a city in modern-day Algeria, was a prolific writer 
And through those writings, he has had a lasting and continuing effect on the life and doctrine uh, of the church. Augustine was famously cited uh, often by the Reformers as they rediscovered the doctrines of grace, and Calvinism can be categorized as essentially a rediscovery of Augustinian Christianity. However, for most people, the book that you are likely familiar with, even if you haven't read it, is his book called The City of God. In that book, Augustine describes the world as, to borrow Charles Dickens' title, as a tale of two cities. There is, on the one hand, the city of man, which is characterized by the determination to live life apart from God. And on the other hand, there is the city of God, which is characterized by a love for God and a desire to live in communion with Him. In the city of God, the book, Augustine wrote this. He said, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greater glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its its head in its own glory. The other says to God, you are my glory and the lifter up of my head. It's a good and faithful metaphor for humanity. It is essentially a way of repackaging and representing how God Himself described how humanity would develop in Genesis 3. In the curse upon the serpent, God said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In the talking of, of, of the two offsprings, the one of the serpent and the one of the woman, God was describing the future bifurcation of humanity after the fall. Not that the serpent would have offspring by natural generation, but rather God is saying that there would be two streams in humanity, the one bearing the family likeness of the devil and the other walking in the ways of God. That's what we see, of course, embodied in Cain and Abel. Cain the son of the serpent, as it were, determined to live a life driven by the love of self and the contempt of God, and Abel, the son of the woman, compelled to live by the love of God. And it's what we see here too in Isaiah chapter 24, as Isaiah brings this second major section of his book to a conclusion. Now, just by way of review, just Remember the structure that we've been following in Isaiah. We've got the introduction in chapters 1 through 5. We've got the first major section in chapters 6 through 12. And then we've got this section that we're currently in, the second major section in chapters 13 through 27. And as this section now begins its conclusion and begins to draw to a close, Isaiah brings us here to see the fate of these two strains of humanity. Of course, excuse me, in a sense, it's what he's been describing all the way through this section. 
If the first major section reveals God's saving purposes for Israel and Judah, the second major section has zoomed out to give us a picture of God's purposes for the whole world. Or maybe better, in the second section, Isaiah has zoomed out and in. As I've tried to think about how to explain the way that this section is structured, I've struggled, but the best that I've come up with, and maybe this isn't very good, but the best I've come up with is it's something like Google Earth. Right? If you've ever played with Google Earth, you can zoom in to particular places, right? You start with this, with this picture of the whole world, and you type in St. Simon's Island, and suddenly you come zooming in down through the ozone layer, down through the, through the clouds, and into St. Simon's Island. And then you type in another place, and you zoom right back out, back into space, and then you come diving into another community, the earth rotating and changing as you come back in. That's what Isaiah has been doing, I think, in the oracles that we've been studying, jumping from place to place, typing in, typing in Babylon, and then zooming out as he goes to Jerusalem, and then over to Tyre and and Sidon, jumping from point to point, particular places, particular forms of human civilization, but all of them taken as a whole, showing us that there's not a, a type of human-centered civilization that will escape the judgment of God. Ray Ortland put it like this. He said, the nations and cultures and businesses and ideas and trends and politics and moralities of this present age however much they disagree on the surface, are in fact unified at the profoundest level. They are all against God. That's what Isaiah has been showing us, I think. Whether it's brute force Babylon, wily Philistia, proud Egypt, seductive Phoenicia, different places, different cultures, but all of them united by a determination to live in a way that is driven by a love of self. But now, in these last few chapters of the second major section, Isaiah zooms out, and he really just sits there in space, giving us this view of the, the whole world. And he describes it, like Augustine, as a tale of two cities. The image that Isaiah presents us with concerning the earthly city is one of total destruction. Look at how Isaiah piles the clauses of verses 1 and 2 on top of one another. Isaiah uses here a series of what is called uh, merisms. This is a technique you'll see throughout the Old Testament. They use two extremes to describe the whole, right? We do it in English too. When you say that you searched high and low, uh, the implication is you searched everywhere in between as well. Not that you just got up on a ladder and searched up there and then got down on your knees and searched down there. But it's a merism. The two extremes to communicating the whole. And here he gives us this breathless, almost exhausting series of, of merisms. He says, people and priest, slave and master, maid and mistress, buyer, seller, lender, borrower, creditor, debtor. 
It's this emphatic, breathless way of driving home the veracity of that very opening statement that the Lord will empty the earth, and leading to that powerful summary in verse 3 that the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. And then, just to further embolden and italicize and underscore his point, in verses 7 through 12, he gives us this series of what Alec Mortier calls 15 hammer blows that demolishes the earthly city. And the result, verse 10, is that that earthly city is broken down and it's desolate. It's another one of these tremendously evocative images, isn't it? Those images that we've seen throughout this second section that, that, that just grip our imagination. We can, I think, easily imagine the scene that's being depicted here. This is a, an ancient walled city, but now there's a, a deep V where the, the wall is crumbled, the stone lying in front of it. The houses, you walk through the streets and the, the houses are empty. It's, it's kind of like the, the, the Marie Celeste. There's, there's, there's tokens of human civilization, the people who used to live here, but, but now the houses are empty. There's a disturbing silence in the streets. The, the great gates that used to stand as the, the defense at the entrance to the city are, verse 12, battered now just into splinters. Where there was once liveliness, the hustle and bustle of the city, where there was once laughter and the sound of children playing, now just nothing. There's tumbleweed blowing through this city. This verse 13 puts it, it's, it's like an olive tree after the harvest, or it's like the grapevine after the gleaning that followed the harvest, right? You understand that, that image. The farmers were, were not allowed to harvest all the way to the edges of their fields. The vine dressers were not allowed to take all of the fruit off their vines. It was to be left there for the, the poor, the impoverished, that they could come along and harvest off of another man's abundance. But after the gleaning was done, then there was nothing left. By the time the poor had come through, it was stripped absolutely bare. And so, verse 13 is giving us this picture of a structure that's remaining, but all the life has gone. The word in verse 10, that's translated in our Bibles as, as wasted, is the is the Hebrew word tohu. It's the word that's used in Genesis 1 verse 2 when it describes the earth before creation, at the very beginning of that creative week, saying that the earth was without form and void. It was, it was tohu and, and void. This earthly city is now without form. It has been so totally destroyed that it's essentially been returned to that primordial void, lifeless, removed from the God who gives life, a facade of human success apart from God, now shown as hollow as it truly is. And why has this happened to the city? Well, it's the day of judgment, right? That's what this whole second section has been about. It has been about that day of, of reckoning, that day when all evil will stand before the throne of God. Verse 21, though, makes it explicit. 
on that day, the day that is being described here, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. What is being described is that day when all things are brought to account before God, all opposition to God, whether angelic or human, brought to account, bearing the cost of their rebellion. And what is it specifically that has provoked this wrath? Verse 5, they've transgressed the laws, they've violated the statutes, they've broken the everlasting covenant. What covenant? The covenant with Noah, the covenant of preservation, right? The other covenants with Abraham, Moses, David, they were made specifically with Israel. But the covenant that God made with Noah was a, a general covenant. It was a covenant regarding the whole earth, regarding all of humanity. You remember it from Genesis 9. Genesis 9, verse 9, God says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, with every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. It was a covenant with Noah and all his offspring after him. And because Noah and his sons were the only people left on earth after the flood, it was, by its very nature, a covenant with all of humanity. And what was the content of that covenant? It was a magnificent display of God's abundant grace and mercy. This great promise that God would preserve humanity despite their sins. It was the great revelation of the patience of God with sinners. But what has God done with this mercy and grace? What has humanity done with this mercy and grace of God? They've used it as a license for sin. They've used the lack of God's immediate punishment as a sign that God does not care, or as a sign that God is unable to do anything about it. But it's what we read in Psalm 73, isn't it? Psalm 73, verse 4, speaking of the wicked, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They have set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and can find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In their arrogance, they have mistaken the patient mercy of God for an indifference or an inability on the part of God to do anything about it. But what Isaiah is saying here is that it is a temporary reprieve. On this last day depicted here, they will harvest what they have sown. As Isaiah zooms out, he shows us a world that, like in the days of Noah, is now facing a reckoning for their sin and for their rebellion against God. Like in those days, verse 18, the windows of heaven will be opened, and the world will again be returned to that void by the wrath of God against sin. All of 
human achievement apart from God. Every civilization built for the glory of man and not for the glory of God, devoured, overturned, and destroyed. And someone put it, this is the revelation that on the day of judgment, life without God at the center will be revealed to be nothing but a beautiful, even heroic social construct. And the World's Fair was in St. Louis in 1904. A massive construction effort was put in place to house it. Skinker Swamp was drained, and it was turned into a, a park, and on that land, they constructed these massive, regal, classical buildings. Have you seen pictures of it? You, you know that they were buildings that looked like walking through ancient Rome, made of enormous marble blocks, vaulted ceilings, ornate columns. It's like walking through, through ancient Rome or walking through Paris or think of the most beautiful city in the world and then think of it on steroids. That's what they built for the world's fair. Except all of those grand buildings, apart from two, were made of plaster of Paris. They spoke of beauty. They spoke of substance. They spoke of permanence and solidity. But at the end of the fair, they just collapsed into a pile of dust. That's the image that Isaiah is giving here of this social construction of a world built on its own terms. In the last analysis, regardless of what form it takes, such a life, such a world will be broken down by the justice and righteousness of God. The city of man that seems so permanent now, crumbling before the judgment of God. It's a solemn message. It's a serious message. It's a message that you need to hear if you have not yet put your faith in Christ. It's a message that says you're on shaky ground. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said to those who were ostensibly His disciples, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's what Isaiah is describing. And so if you're here this morning, if you've not yet put your faith in Christ, even if you have ostensibly been a Christian for years and years, if you are trying to live life on your own terms, hear Isaiah's warning, it may well work for a time. But here Scripture lifts the veil and it shows you the end and it says honestly, openly, without joy or glee, it tells you the solemn truth that that life will not stand, but it will be broken down. There will be a reckoning. But there is here a second city, a heavenly city, a city of God. 
This city will feature more explicitly in the next few chapters, but we get a glimpse of it here. At the very end of verse 23, And the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. We saw Jerusalem condemned in the oracle in chapter 22 for how corrupted it had become with religious syncretism and the desire to be just like the surrounding nations. But here the reference is to the true Jerusalem, the Jerusalem as it was meant to be, the Jerusalem as it will be, the city of God in which God is worshipped and glorified. It's the city, of course, that John sees in Revelation 21, when he saw the new heaven and the new earth and that holy city, that new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In contrast to the desolation and the hopeless formlessness of the earthly city, the heavenly city is described here as one that is full of life, one that is full of joy, one that is full of abundance. As I said, we'll see a lot more of this in the next few chapters where the focus will really be on the nature of this true, new, heavenly Jerusalem, but we are given a glimpse of it here in verses 14, 15, and 16. Now, your English Bibles, I'm not sure how they are formatted, but it's likely that the formatting doesn't help you here, but rather confuses you. When you come to the beginning of verse 14 and you read they, you wonder who they are. It seems to refer to those who have just been destroyed in that city. We've just come off of the description of that olive tree being beaten, that grave harvest being done. But really, the, the they, in verse 14, refers to the few men who are left at the end of verse 6. So really, verses 7 through 13, think of them as, as parenthetical, right? They are explaining the scorched earth of verse 6 and the context in which these few are found. But verse 14 now picks up with those few who remain, and here they are described in contrast to the fate of those in verses 7 through uh, 13. We are now given this description of those who remain as those who are rejoicing in God, those who are delighting in the majesty of their God, in contrast to a way of life that is determined to live without reference to God. For these, their whole world revolves around God and is captivated by His worship. Verse 16, from the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. These are the people who have been preserved through this judgment. These are the ones that have been brought now to inhabit the new Jerusalem. They are the redeemed. They are those who, in the grace of God, have realized in the words of Hebrews 13, that they have no lasting city here, but they have sought the city that is to come. In other words, they are those who have heard the words of Christ and have done them. And in doing so, they have built their house upon the rock. They are those who do not need to fear the judgment that is to come. 
but those who know that their future is secure and guaranteed. And that is the hope of the gospel that is laid out for you this morning. Acts 2.21, Peter said, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now listen, the Bible tells you the bad news about your sin. The Bible is, is honest with you, as I said before, without joy, without glee, without delight, just honest, solemn, serious, straightforward. In your pride, in your arrogant rebellion against God, in your sin, in your determination to live life apart from God in the city of man, you are an enemy of God. Or maybe better, God is your enemy, and that makes your destiny profoundly grim. But the Bible also tells you the abundantly good news, and this time with delight, with joy. The Bible comes and tells you that any and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It tells you that there is in Christ a perfect Savior for any and all who call on Him. Regardless of who you are, regardless of where you have come from, regardless of what you have done, if you come to Christ and cast yourself upon Him, then there is forgiveness to be found, and your salvation will be secured. There is the promise that you can escape the present city of man. There is the promise that King Jesus will bring you into the city of God, and you will dwell there as a happy and holy citizen, your sins forgiven, content, secure, whole, at peace now and forevermore. In this chapter, we are given the two sides, the city of man, the city of God, the bad news of the gospel and the good news of the gospel, and it leaves us with the decision, where will you dwell? But as we Look at this passage this morning. On this communion Sunday, as we come to the Lord's table, we see laid out before our eyes the reason why there is such a perfect salvation for those who put their faith in Christ. As our Lord Jesus went to the cross where His body would be broken and His blood spilt, He went there as the great substitute of all those who would put their faith in Him. As Jesus hung on His cross, He hung there bearing the full wrath of God against the sins of His people. As Jesus hung on that cross, He was broken down. He was made desolate. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, as Isaiah will put it later, laid waste because of our sin by the holy wrath of God. But as Jesus rose from His grave, He declared abroad that His sacrifice had been accepted. As Jesus rose from the grave on that first day of the week, He declared abroad that everything that He had done was sufficient. It was perfect. And now those who have their faith in Him are joined together with Him, free from the burden and guilt of sin to enjoy new life with Christ. John Piper once said, if you love the promise, come to the Lord's table and ponder its price. 
That's what we come to do this morning, to see the broken body and the spilt blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. At once, the greatest declaration of just how bad you are in your sins. The broken body and spilt blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest condemnation that you will ever face, that this is the extent of the remedy that was required to give you new life. Nothing less than the death of Jesus Christ. But it is also the greatest declaration of the gracious love of God for sinners that compelled Jesus to grow to the cross, willingly bearing that price so that any and all who put their faith in Him will not perish, but will be granted everlasting life. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, a baptized believer, a member in a Bible-believing church, then you are welcome to come to this table. It's not our table. It's not the Presbyterian table. It's the Lord's table. So come and join with us. Come and eat. Come and ponder. Come and proclaim your active and living faith in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Christ, then please do not take the elements as they are served. In eating this bread and drinking this cup, we are professing our active faith in Christ, and so for you to do it would be to say something that is not true of you nor true of Christ. But hear the warning of Isaiah 24. And see here that the gates of the city of God are wide open to you. Come to Christ. Put your faith in Him. And find with us happiness, security, wholeness, and joy. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come holding fast to our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that it is only in Him that we can have the forgiveness of our sins. Oh Lord, we know that for so long our lives were caught up in the city of man, that we too were determined to live life on our own terms, doing what we thought was right. But in your grace, you have brought us out of that city like Lot escaping the city of destruction. And you have brought us into the city of God, into that new Jerusalem where we might now be at rest, totally forgiven in Christ. We pray, Father, that as we come now to the Lord's table, that we would ponder the cost of our salvation. And in doing so, we would be humbled before the throne of grace, and that we would be all the more thankful for the richness and the fullness of the salvation that is ours in Christ. We thank you for this bread. We thank you for this cup. And we pray that you would bless it now, not so much to the nourishment of our bodies as to the nourishment of our souls, that our faith would be deepened and our wonder increased. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.